Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Before I came up here, I was uh, struggling to get through all the songs. Um, I started singing, and sometimes on Sunday morning, of course, I don't fault you if you don't feel this too. Uh, I'm usually up early on Sundays, usually studying, going over the texts, trying to really center and focus on the application of these things. Uh, on Sundays when I'm not preaching, I'm not usually up very early in the morning uh, trying to focus on the applications of biblical texts. I know what it's like to, to arrive at the church facilities and to sit down and to hope that by the time uh, the service comes along, uh, I have been drawn into a spiritual preparedness uh, and sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. So I don't fault you for not feeling uh, certainly the same things that I feel, but I was struggling to make it through some of the songs this morning just because they were bringing out emotion in me from having reflected on God's Word uh, for hours and hours uh, already this morning, which is appropriate, I think. And I asked Hallie uh, to help me go into the Kleenex box because my hand wouldn't fit inside that Kleenex box right there. And the Kleenexes were all at the bottom of this thing. And she just looked at me like I was a fool and carefully took the top off the Kleenex box and then took them out. And I said, that would have made sense. And I said, is there any more in there? And she said, no. So I said, I guess I should not cry very much uh, this morning. And so that's what I will endeavor uh, not to do is uh, cry very much uh, this morning, although we will find as we get further along into uh, Corinth that there is certainly nothing inappropriate about a crying preacher. And those of you who uh, have uh, made passionate pleas uh, before to people uh, to hear of their sin and to think about their sin and to repent of their sin and who have been drawn into reflection of their own sin and their own background and their own salvation should have a sense of the emotion that can come out when you meditate on these things. Uh, this morning, we are going to uh, just look at a few verses. We have looked uh, so far in uh, the letter to the Corinthians, uh, several verses each week, uh, only a few. We're only going to look at a few this morning, so a, a bit of a slowdown, I know. But Paul, I believe, is really at the heart right now of breaking down or attempting to break down human glory and pride that the Corinthians are struggling with. And that's what we're going to spend our time thinking about and considering for a little while this morning. Breaking down human glory and pride. Uh, I took this passage from what Joe read this morning. Joe, thank you for reading this morning. Uh, I don't know if someone suggested you read that or if you read it on your own. I didn't suggest it. I know it was long, and I know uh, there's a lot of, of language back and forth in 1 John chapter 2, but here are just three verses of what Joe read for us. 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. 
And that's really what Paul is focusing on, I think, this morning in these verses. You will remember the Corinthian church is dealing with uh, division and sections of the church who feel one way about something and another way about something else. They are devising themselves into categories of followers. Followers of Paul, followers of Apollos, followers, followers of Peter. There's even a faction that said they were followers of Jesus, which we should all be, as opposed to the other groups. And he is dealing with now the heart of what leads to those sorts of divisions and those sorts of irreconcilable uh, conflicts in the body. And so let's read beginning in verse 26, just to the end of the chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So these are the verses that we're going to look at and think about a little bit this morning. Now, the first thing that I want to focus on is the idea of calling, calling. In verse 26, Paul acknowledges something that every Christian should have experienced in their life. So if we're doing our spiritual checklists, our health checklist this morning, as I've told you we are in this letter to do an evaluation of our spiritual health, this is a great question for us this morning. Have you been called by God? Have you been called by God? Paul acknowledges right off the bat that they had. Verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren. Calling. Later on, he goes on to suggest to us in verse 27 that God does not take into account certain characteristics when He chooses people. Look at verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame things of the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world. Verse 28, the base things of the world, the things which are despised, God's, God has chosen. So we have, at the premise of Paul's breaking down of human pride and glory, an acknowledgement that every Christian should have experienced both the calling of God and responded to the calling of God as they see God has chosen them for something else, for something other than where they were. The idea of calling here in the language, if you're curious, I think it's helpful, is an invitation. Built into the root word that the Greek word is for calling here is uh, the idea of where you're from, where you are at right now, the category of people you're in. It's an invitation to come from a group, a place, uh, an activity into something else. That's the pure language 
behind the idea. So a calling here is an invitation by God. Uh, it is an invitation personally extended to you, after all. Verse 26 says that it is your calling. Do you remember? Have you experienced the calling of God in your life? That is an invitation out of the pursuits and the ambitions, certainly the sin and the unrighteousness, out of the life that you are living and into something else. Have you experienced that? And if so, do you remember what that calling was like? Uh, I have experienced it several times in my life. I don't believe it's something that you necessarily just feel the spiritual emphasis of one time in your life. Uh, I experienced a calling when I was a very little boy in Bolivar, uh, Missouri, six years old. And my mom and dad were talking with me about my sin, of which I was aware enough, and that uh, Jesus had given his life to pay for my sin. They were very honest with me, but also gentle in a way that you should be with children. Uh, but direct, they did not lie about the reality of heaven and hell. They did not seek to withhold from me the importance of dealing with my sin before God. And I remember in the living room, little house in Bolivar, Missouri, I remember hearing these things and being directly confronted about who I was spiritually as a little boy at six years old. And I experienced, as best I can say, an internal calling into a right relationship with God. An internal calling that I felt because of the external gospel that I was hearing. But nonetheless, I knew that God uh, and His love for me were real. That the sacrifice of Jesus was real. And that through the sacrifice of Jesus, God was providing me personally a way to be forgiven of my sin. So I experienced that calling. A little later in life, 16, 15, 16 years old, uh, I was not living, you know, in the way that I should. Uh, probably uh, much to the obliviousness of the people around me. When you're six, the amount of sin and ambition and pride that you have is not the same as when you're 14, 15, 16 years old. As we experience human maturity, so we experience new human awareness of who we are and where we are in the world around us. And our desires change. And I experienced a calling again. And it was similar to the first time. It was the awareness that God was calling me out of the life that I was living, out of the way that I was living, and into a better way of living even as a teenager. And I responded, when I was 26, 27, this same sort of thing happened again. Now no longer a teenager, married, with children, a job, responsibilities. And just like the growth that takes place from 6 to 15, I was not the same person as I was when I was 14, 15. Two desires, two things to evaluate. There were new ambitions. There were new desires, new complacencies. And I experienced once again what I knew clearly to be the calling, the invitation of God to change, to move from the life and the circumstances that I had settled into, into a more uncomfortable and yet I knew more profoundly righteous relationship with Him.
Am I telling you that I was saved three times? Absolutely not. I was saved once before the foundations of the world is the most accurate way that I can depict it. But throughout my life, I have gone through the ebbs and flows of serving God the way that I should, not serving God the way that I should. And each time I remembered, as Paul is calling on the Corinthians here, to remember the calling that they experienced. And so as part of your own spiritual health evaluation in this letter, do you remember the calling or callings in your life out of complacency, out of sin, out of your ambitions, your prides, your vanities, and into a right relationship, into a right fellowship, into a close walk with Him? It's a fearful thing, and rightfully so, to truly experience this calling. It can be intimidating because we become com comfortable with whatever situations we have nestled into. And, and the calling of God is always a bit uncomfortable. It's calling us to a more rightly lived out expression of faith than whatever our complacencies have drawn us into. I think it's important even for Christians to evaluate this calling of God and to understand that just because we have been saved before the foundations of the earth doesn't mean that the way we're living at any given moment during any given month or year of our lives is as it should be. We tend to regress. We tend to slow down. Do you remember the calling of God in your life? Those of you who have responded to the calling of God in your life, who know what that change looks like, perhaps you've experienced the benefits and the blessing of stepping out in faith to a closer walk with God, of leaving certain things behind, of changing your ambitions and your goals. Those of you who have done that will know the blessings of doing that, will know the peace and the joy that comes from doing that, sometimes very much unexpected from when you stepped away from those things. When you think about the future and where you are, I'd just like to encourage you that moving from a position of complacency or weakness into a new and closer relationship with the Lord, reaffirming our faith and reaffirming our desire to serve God with all our hearts, it will always come with spiritual blessings. And Paul is going to remind us of those even this morning. But the calling acknowledges something important about God, something that is crucial to breaking down human glory and human pride. The calling acknowledges the selection of God, the choosing of God in calling sinners to Himself. God, if you are a Christian, has chosen you. You didn't hear about sin and hear about Jesus and work this out in your own wisdom. Something inside you clicked into place. Something inside you slowly gave way. Something inside of you trusted that Jesus Christ was your reconciliation to God. Human beings feel guilt. That's not inhuman. There's nothing supernatural about feeling guilt. We're sinners. All of us, Christians, not Christians, we have to deal with the reality that we do things that are wrong, that we hurt people who we care about, that we hurt people who we don't care about. 
Sometimes we have to deal with the reality that we hurt people who we know we should care about and don't for whatever reason. When human beings deal with guilt, there are lots of ways that they deal with it. There are lots of variations to this. There are those who just try to put it behind them and move on. There are those who try to learn from it, and their way of dealing with the guilty feelings is expressing guilt in terms of the personal growth that it led them towards. And so they kind of dismiss their own accountability of it because, after all, it has led to something positive or good in their life, some good change. There are those who deal with guilt by doing good things that help them feel better about bad things. And that turns out to be a weird and sort of sinister logic that everyone does bad things. It's important that everyone does good things too, as if there were a balancing act between good and evil. And then there's the reality that there are a whole number of people in the world who don't deal with guilt well at all. They never find any sort of even earthly peace with it. And they deal with depressions and anxieties and tremendous moral fear and tremendous difficulty accepting the consequences for the things that have happened that they've been a part of in their life. It's very normal for human beings to feel guilt and to try to deal with it and wrestle for the better or the worse. But Christians are unique in that God has revealed to them that all of their guilt has been dealt with at the cross and that through Jesus Christ, they have an invitation into a right relationship with Him whereby they may be free eternally from guilt. Not simply trying to put it to the back burner or hide it in the closet or counterbalance it with some good deed, which will always be insufficient. But Christians, because of God's choosing in revelation to them, Christians know that they can be free of guilt. You did not come to this confidence in Jesus Christ by your own power of reasoning or deduction. Jesus has done a miracle, a miraculous thing in your life. He has blessed you with the presence and the knowledge of the Spirit of God, the very Spirit of Himself, to speak words of truth to you, words of peace to you, and to redeem you from a life of worthlessness and to bring you into His family. This is God's calling and choosing of you. And if you're a Christian, you know and have felt the spiritual weight of what I'm talking about right now. These things should not be unfamiliar, but familiar. It's then on the basis of God's choosing and calling that Paul makes this statement, which we could easily be offended by. But here's the statement. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. <laughs> it's a bit of an offensive thing to say to a group of people, right? He's saying for little First Baptist Church of New Paris, you see from your own calling that not many wise, mighty, or noble are called. <laughs> now, would you be a little offended by that? Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> but Paul is not saying that only the, the stupid or only the, 
the weak or only the, you know, the powerless in this world are called. No, that's not what he's doing. There's a way in which you could be insulted. But instead it's saying that God did not choose his people from the world from the elite classes. He did not. God made a selection. He chose you. He has adopted you. He has selected you. He has invited you and called you into his family. And he has not made the grounds of his choosing your own elite qualities. That's what he's saying. If we were putting together a group of people to save the world from some catastrophe, what sort of people would the world assemble for such a task? Do you think that they would cast their eyes upon New Paris, Ohio and examine us for this elite squad? Would be able to save the world from impending doom? I don't think so. I don't think New Paris would be anywhere remotely on their radar. I'm not sure Ohio would be remotely on their radar. There is nothing that screams elite about us. It's funny, I, that word elite has, has kind of evolved over the years, right? And now, you know, again, I, I know those of you who hate the sports references, but, but if you go to these little third and fourth grade basketball games, I, I'm going to go to one of those here this afternoon, and, and these little kids wearing basketball socks, and some of them say elite on the basketball socks. And I'm looking at these kids saying, there's nothing elite about that athlete right there. You know what I mean? The, the word elite, profound, superior, the best of the best. Let's look at these qualities for a second. The wise of the world. The wise of the world. Um... The wisdom of the world is foolishness because it only values the temporary and it assumes autonomy. Um, earthly wisdom values what is temporary and it assumes autonomy. What I mean by that is earthly wisdom will always and exclusively focus on the material, what we can see, touch, feel right now. Earthly wisdom does not take into account a life beyond the one you're living. Earthly wisdom does not take into account an existence beyond what we experience right now. So by nature, it is very temporary. And it assumes autonomy. It assumes self-government and self-control. It assumes that one can be the master of their own domain. And so you should apply earthly wisdom to possess, to gain hold of, to enjoy, to make use of, depending on what your objective is, that which is temporary. And it is faulty. It's faulty. There are many elite, wise people in the world. Um, many, of them get, many of them get paid lots of money for their elite wisdom. And they provide us with ample opportunity to recognize the foolishness of elite worldly wisdom. Uh, Warren Buffett, if you don't know who he is, famous investor, uh, made the, the, the bet, is about 15 years ago, he bet that over the course of 10 years, if you took the exact same amount of money and invested it in just an index fund that was managed by no one, not managed by a single financial elite, you took a million dollars 
and just put it into an index fund that was not managed by a single person. It just traced whatever the general stock market did that it would outperform over the course of 10 years any elite managed hedge fund. He bet a million dollars and there was a famous hedge fund financial expert that took him up on it. And through the first three or four years, that guy was killing the standard index fund. He wasn't competing against Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett wasn't doing anything intellectually in it. It's just, can someone who just bought something completely unmanaged that tracks the general economy outperform the guy who says he can, in his wisdom, manipulate which to stocks and equities to buy and sell in order to take advantage of that same economy over the same period of time. And lo and behold, after 10 years, uh, it was true. Just a general unmanaged investment in the economy had outperformed significantly the elite class and their hedge fund management. And he did this as an experiment because of all the fees that these mutual funds and hedge funds charge people to manage their money using all of their elite wisdom. How many people were broken this year financially by a virus and a response to a virus in the world around us that many did not anticipate? How many people were broken? How many CEOs suffered? How many executives made all of their financial plans for their business unanticipated of a uh, sort of sickness pandemic that the whole world responds? The wisdom of the world, where is it really a global response like this? Where is the wisdom of the world? Where is it really? It is temporary and it assumes autonomy. It assumes the ability to self-govern itself to one's own best interest over a very limited amount of time. God does not choose his people from among the world's elites. Wisdom is a valuable trait. But God's wisdom is not focused on the temporary. As Joe read this morning, God's promise to us is eternal life and an eternal inheritance. That's the end of 1 John chapter 2. What about the powerful? We know what God has said about wisdom. Matthew 6, 19. The temporary do not store up treasures on earth. About autonomy, self-governance. Luke 12, 20. In his parable, Jesus calls the man a fool for all of his wealth and investments. Fool, this night will be required of you then Whose will the things be which you provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So much for autonomy. The rich man is a fool because he's going to die. He can't control his treasure or his riches. But what about the strong? There are lots of ways you could approach the strong. For us, the strong are often uh, athletes or military personnel. I could read you a name of people who have died in 2020. Some of you will recognize the name, some of you won't. I'll just give you 11 of them, okay? Don Larson, Kobe Bryant, Bobby Mitchell, Wes Unseld, Tom Seaver, Lou Brock, Gail Sayers, Bob Gibson, Whitey Ford, Joe Morgan, and Diego Maradona. So this is the elite of the elite of strength, dying at various ages, demonstrating for all of us the total futility of trusting in human strength whether you are Kobe Bryant crashing in a helicopter at the peak of your cultural influence 
or a Don Larson, almost old and forgotten about, a Gail Sayers, out of the spotlight for 50 years. Such is the power and the glory of human strength. But I like to think of it in a different way. I remember my grandpa's funeral. My grandpa was in the military, fought in a war, served his country, and by his mid-30s was a cripple in a wheelchair bed, never standing again, never using his legs, wherever he went was in a wheelchair. Whenever you visit him, he's in a bed. This is the glory and the achievement of human strength. It doesn't mean anything to God. It doesn't mean anything. What about nobility, those who are noble? The hierarchy of human nobility was traditionally based on who one was born to, who your parents were. It's changed. Democratic society, it can be based on the people who sing the best or dance the best or come up with an invention for themselves, start something powerful. I think I read the other day that the world's top 10 richest people are all uh, executives or former executives of the major technology companies in the world. Those are the richest people in the world. That's a, no a nobility, if you will. Nobility refers to those who are in power, real, real power who have the money, who have the say, who can manipulate circumstances to their own liking. What happens to the noble? What happens to the powerful? It's very temporary. It's fleeting. It doesn't last. We should be careful as Christians. This is just a thought. Do with it what you want. We should be careful as Christians when we encounter celebrities or powerful people who profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that we should doubt their profession of faith or develop any sort of envious or antagonistic relationship or mindset towards them, but we should be careful. Because oftentimes I've heard people talk about celebrities, whether they're actors or singers or sports figures, who um, take over the... The, the eyes of the culture for a short period of time, and then who profess the Lord Jesus Christ and talk about their Christian faith. And I, I've seen many a Christian talk about those people in such a way as if they have such an opportunity to make such a big difference in the world because of their Christian faith and their celebrity and their spotlight. I've almost never seen that happen. I, I can't think of a single time I've ever seen it happen. Which again, doesn't mean I... I doubt the faith, but you need to understand that is not how God works. He does not choose people based on their elite qualities. And He does not rely on their elite qualities to accomplish His purposes either. I hope that that is encouraging to you and not discouraging. The key to a life of Christian service that makes a difference is not to go get the biggest platform for yourself or make yourself powerful and then do something for the Lord. The key is in the back hallway of a little Sunday school class with five or six people. 
That's how God has chosen to make a difference in the world. The key is the long and hard conversation with your children. The key is the tough visit with your brother or sister in Christ who is struggling. The faithful and generous giving of time and energy and effort in the body of Christ when they're together. That's how the world has changed. Not because some person who can throw a football really, really far writes Bible verses on their cleats. And I'm not mocking or ridiculing that. I hope the faith is real and genuine and saving and that I meet the person in heaven one day. But too many times, Christians put their hope in the future of our faith on mere human beings? In places of elite power? As if it wasn't always very temporary. It is. No, no. But what does the Bible say? God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Anyone here graduate from an Ivy League college? Maybe you did. I did not. Do you know what that makes me in the grand perspective of all the executives of the world? It makes me ignorant and uneducated. But that's okay. Because God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Any professional athletes among us? Any Medal of Honor winners? Anybody that the world is going to hold up in the culture and the life around us as a person of power and strength? Not outside our own little local realm. There isn't. That's okay. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. In verse 28, and He has chosen the lowly things of the world. It does not get more lowly than New Paris, Ohio in the grand culture of our American world that we live in. It doesn't get more lowly. How many of you grew up poor and didn't know it? <laughs> because you were doing just as well as the people around you. That's okay. God doesn't make His selections based on your parents' wealth or your upbringing or your ability to do something in the pop culture around you. That's okay. He's chosen the base things of the world and the things which are despised. He's chosen. And the things which are not is chosen. You're nobody. That's okay. God has chosen the nobodies to bring to nothing the things that are. And this is God's promise from verse 19 last week. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. I will tear it down. And if you're chosen by God, you are part of that deconstruction of the great lie that you can find fulfillment, that you can find your calling, that you can find your destiny in this very temporary and fleeting world alone. I want to be a part of the deconstruction of that lie.
That lie will leave you bankrupt. But what of Jesus? It's a good question. What of Jesus? Here is what the scriptures say of Jesus. Matthew 21, 5. Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. We serve a Lord and King who in His humanity exhibited humility. It's an interesting word, humility. You notice it sounds a lot like human. The word human, humility, human. It's because it comes from the same Latin word. Those Latin guys had a little bit more faith in God than our current lexicon uh, does. Yeah, humility, human, meaning from the dirt or low. In other words, if you think of humility... You should think of humanity in the same way. Low. Lower than who? God. From the dirt. Here is Jesus speaking to his position in the world and culture around him. Matthew 9, verses 11 through 13. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus was with the nobodies. He was from their class. What about the strong? You remember what happens when Jesus is confronted with the power of man? In the Garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and He will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? He's the man who spoke a word, and the soldiers fell down. What was Jesus' appreciation and fear and dread and marvel for the elite of human strength. Not much. What should yours be? Probably not much. But I think I like this one the best. From Jesus in his time before Pilate, Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Just a few years from then, Pilate would be dead, executed by Caesar. Jesus was no respecter of persons. God is no respecter of persons. And if you're a Christian, he didn't choose you because of your eliteness, nor should you be in pursuit of it. He doesn't need you to be elite to use you for his kingdom. He doesn't need you to be a master of earthly wisdom. He doesn't need you to pursue your own power and strength. And he certainly doesn't need you to pursue your own glory. What is the glory of man compared to the glory of God? Why has he chosen these things? Why has he specifically not made a point 
of creating a people on the earth to serve him who are representative of the elite classes of the world. Why? Verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 1. That no flesh should glory in his presence. That is not insecurity or vanity on behalf of God. That is an acknowledgement of the corruption that you should acknowledge this morning too. You are a sinner. You have a corrupt mind and a corrupt heart. There is nothing worth glorying in in your life save what's afforded to you by Jesus Christ. There is nothing. You want to hold up the great mother that you've been. You want to hold up the great father that you've been. You really ready to put that under the light, under the microscope, and stand in judgment before God? You want to hold up your great generosity. Do you really want God to do an evaluation of all the times you overlooked those in need? You want to hold up your great honesty and integrity. Do you want God to open the books there? Your purity. Are you ready for an examination? Your friendship and how faithful and loyal you are. Would you like all the words of gossip and slander that you've ever uttered in private to a friend, a spouse, a family member to be unrolled for the world to see just how faithful you are? Just how loyal you are? It is a great deception that there is anything in your life worth glorying in except for the redeemed life that Jesus Christ has given you. Because only through the redemption of Jesus Christ has your sin been dealt with so that you can do or accomplish anything that is pure and worthy of eternal remembrance. If you want to see the glory of man, go take a walk amongst the corpses across the tree line. That's the glory of man. And that's where every one of us is headed. And that's where every one of us would stay until a day of judgment and condemnation to eternal hell except for Jesus Christ. It's not insecurity that God will not allow flesh to glory before Him. It's wisdom. There is nothing to glorify in flesh. But, verse 30, where we close. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us, here are things you can glory in, given to you by Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. The Bible is not casting a shadow over wisdom. It wants you to be possessed with divine wisdom. A wisdom that is not screwed up in thinking that it is autonomous and in control, nor a wisdom that only looks at the temporary. But Jesus became for us wisdom from God and righteousness, real goodness, real reconciled life before God. Something that is worth glory. Sanctification or holiness is the same word here. Holiness meaning set apart. Holiness, if you will, 
are the characteristics that come out of a Christian whose life has been set apart for something. If you're training for a marathon, there are going to be certain characteristics in your life that are going to look very different from the rest of the people in the world around you. You are holy in that way. You have to be set apart for that way because you're setting yourself apart for a purpose. Christian holiness is like that. Jesus becomes for us a way of living different from the world around us because we have been called, invited, chosen to a different kind of living, a different life, and a different reward which centers on redemption. Redemption. Meaning God taking a life that did not have eternal purpose and giving it eternal purpose. God taking a life that was destined for destruction under judgment. And righteously so, by the way. And giving it purpose and meaning and value. That's what redemption is. It's when you, you have the can of Coke that you just drunk, and it, you're telling me that I, there's some value in this? That's what God has done a billion times fold in your life. These things are afforded to us in Jesus. Verse 31, that it is written, He who glories... Let him glory in the Lord. If you want to have something to brag about, to be excited about, to be happy with, to be proud of, you will not find it in human flesh. You will only find destruction there. So let the one who is happy and rejoicing and glorifying glory in what the Lord Jesus Christ has afforded him or her. This is the breaking down of human glory and pride. And I'll leave you with this as we close. You cannot do any sort of spiritual evaluation unless you come before the Lord with a humble heart. You just can't. It takes humility to acknowledge, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I am saved. Yes, I know that Jesus loves me. And yes, I'm probably not living the way that I should. Yes, things need to change. No pew and listen as they should be. That takes humility. It takes humility to sit in a pew and listen to teaching like this. It takes humility for me to read through these things and evaluate these things and not just give myself green check marks everywhere. I hope that as you hear these words and the ones to come, that you'll value God's evaluation of your life more than your own accomplishments or ambitions. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we know that we live in a world that is ultimately dust to dust and ashes to ashes. That's irrefutable. No one denies it. From the staunchest atheist to the most devout Christian. Everyone acknowledges the ultimate temporariness of the world that we live in. Father, the question of the human soul is what will we do about that? What can be done about it? Father, I ask now that you will extend the deep and spiritual invitation to anyone who is not saved and not walking with you in our congregation this morning, an invitation out of the life that they're living and into a life of redemption, of value and purpose. 
that you will see our time together this morning as an extension of Jesus' time with tax collectors and sinners. Of your words spoken by your son, by your apostles and prophets to people who are in need of a physician. Father, I ask that hearing this, that they will respond to that invitation. As James began by praying for us this morning, that if there is anyone here who does not know you and is not serving you, who has felt the call of your Holy Spirit and not responded, that they will experience what we've read described this morning as a miraculous choosing, a response of faith, a response of trusting you, that you will breathe spiritual life into a soul where there's nothing but death. Father, we pray for the redeeming of people all around us. And we trust, Father, in the gifts and the resources that you've given us, that we have all that we need to accomplish your work, that we need no celebrity, we need no great fortune, no magic words, that your word and the power of your invitation enough isn't enough to save lives. So help us to give and serve you freely, devoid of our own ambitions. And to walk trusting you by faith for our happiness, for our security, for our peace. And to sleep at night with confidence that you will never leave us or forsake us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.